Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to the Punk Rock and Beer Podcast. Really quickly, before we get into this episode, I wanted to mention my Patreon. Patrons get all the podcasts a week early. I do giveaways. I do some other stuff. But most importantly, if you want me to review your music or artwork or anything else, Patreon is the way to do that. Every month, I do a call for submissions. All you need to do if you want me to review something is just post it in the comments of that post. Then I will review it live on Twitch for the hundreds of people that tune into every stream and post it on Patreon for everyone to check out. All you need to do is just join at the $10 and up level. Stay tuned for that post and you are good to go. So if that sounds cool to you and you want me to review your music, artwork, or anything else, hit the link in the show notes for this episode. And thank you very much to everyone who supports over on Patreon. Hello, everybody. Today's episode is a very cool conversation that I had on a podcast called Wisdom MBA. Uh, we talk about a lot of stuff in here that I feel really passionately about. And for anybody who is interested in being a full-time content creator or an entrepreneur of any kind, I would definitely, definitely suggest checking this one out. Um, you know, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit of tough love, I would say, kind of getting into the oftentimes harsh reality of doing this stuff as a full-time job, not to discourage anybody from it, but just to kind of show you what kind of the realities of it are. And uh, also a lot of other stuff that I care about a lot, just kind of about I don't know, about life in general. So uh, really enjoyed this one. Uh, very cool conversation. If you're interested in me talking about business, you're definitely going to love this one. Uh, but I don't know. I think there's something for everybody. It is a great episode. Check it out here. And also uh, make sure you check out Wisdom MBA in general if you liked this one. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. And with that, let's get into this episode. Finn, thank you very much for joining the podcast. I always like to start things off with an icebreaker. This one's a little bit of a thought experiment as well. So I loved your YouTube episode titled The Strange History of the Beastie Boys. In it, you talk about their 1992 album, Check Your Head, which I absolutely loved. You said that everyone in your friend group was obsessed with that album. And in it, you say that, you know, skateboarding was deeply in its tiny wheels phase, mm -hmm. you know, with giant pants, skate videos were 90% fisheye. And it was, you know, the sub, the soundtrack was shifting from uh, punk to rap. Right. And it really was a snapshot of the era. And to your point, you know, so what you want really encapsulates that zeitgeist of the early 90s, you know, at least for our cohort, because we're about roughly the same age. So old, old, old enough, I guess, <laughs> you know, elderly. So if you, Elderly, there you go. Uh, our knees are giving out. So if you had to pick one album, song, or work of art that you feel captures the zeitgeist of the 2020s, our current era, what would it be? And it can be any genre. Uh, I'd probably go with Suicide Boys, who are kind of like the modern equivalent of the Beastie Boys in that 
they are rappers. You know, if you listened to their music, you would say this is rap, which it is. But they come from just like the Beastie Boys. They come from like kind of a punk background. And they're sort of that like Venn diagram overlap of punk, rap, streetwear. And, you know, to make it uh, relevant to the 2020s, also a lot of uh, drug abuse and mental health stuff. Um, so to me, they're but they're they're very smart. And, you know, I think I think they're both sober now. And uh, yeah, I, I think they would really be like the modern day equivalent of that. Now, they're probably not using fisheye lenses and skate videos, but are they heavily involved with TikTok and, and leveraging social media and short form content? Uh, I would have to look, I doubt it, but I'm sure that there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of people making that content on their behalf. Um, because one of the things, you know, it's, it's more, it's more of an opportunity for entertainment brands, but, but really anybody like you don't necessarily have to make the content yourself. You know, any brand is basically just the raw materials that you put for, like, you don't really make your brand, right? Like, your your brand is created by the world out of the raw materials that you give them. Got it. I Does that make I, sense? It it makes sense. I'm just trying to elaborate on it more where it's basically y- you have to be surrounded with experts and people that can sort of leverage and distribute your your brand across different channels, but you're providing them with that, to your point, the raw materials. Yeah, I mean, to use an example of that, whether you like him or not, I would say Elon, and I don't really like him, but I would say Elon is the master of that in sort of the mainstream kind of world. Like how many, like how many social media impressions has he gotten based off of the things that he has son said and done in the public eye. Um, you know, again, whether you agree with those or not and how much shareholder value did that create at one point or another, you know, whenever the, the peak of Tesla was sometime last year or whatever, like probably literally tens of billions of dollars in shareholder value based on the brand that other people built out of the raw materials that Elon put out there. And it's the same thing with suicide boys. Yeah. I don't think that they make TikToks themselves, but they create music that resonates with people who do make TikToks about it on their behalf. Like not, you know, they're not paid by the band, just organically it's created because Suicide Boys put something out that resonates with people in such a way that they want to create content about it and spread that message on behalf of the band. Well, as someone who's been a Tesla shareholder and driver for a long, long time, I actually sold my Tesla shares for the very first time in probably about what six or eight years. Um, but a lot of it, you know, is there's earning calls, yeah, but there's also hype and, yeah. um, you know, getting your name out there. But I had a real problem with leveraging Tesla shares for the Twitter deal, which is a whole separate podcast, but we won't go into it. Totally. I've, I've, yeah, I've so far I, been I'm validated. totally with you on that one. <laughs> it's like you talk about a death spiral of margin calls. Um, but anyways, Yeah, and from a corporate governance perspective, I'm not an expert on that sort of thing. But if I was a Tesla shareholder or on the Tesla board, which I don't know who those people are, probably all cronies of his, but I would not be happy with him allocating so much of his attention to, you know, Twitter rather than the company that he is ostensibly the CEO of. Yeah. It's, it's equal parts attention, but that also leverage it's this. If that, yes. Yes. You, you take something like Twitter that's so heavily leveraged in over market value. You have to execute on your vision so incredibly fast before, you know, 
you start have to sell any more Tesla shares, and that's a right. bad sign. So, anyways, um, I'm going to give you my example. Actually, sure. it's it's not it's a little bit biased because I have young kids, but I was going to put Harry Styles mm-hmm. as yeah, it example. was because you know I think it's very important to have a good riff or chorus that can be shared on TikTok. Um, you know, he's he has this style that's very androgynous and gender yep. fluid. You know, and some argue that that song is about the pandemic and trauma, but it has this like upbeat. Um, it's upbeat, but also very sad, melodic um, lyrics, which I feel that that embodies the pandemic in the sense mm-hmm. that we were trying to be upbeat, but at the same time, we're dealing with this emotional trauma. And um, so we'll see, time will tell. But um, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, my personal perspective is that there's a fine line with any of this stuff involving, you know, trauma and mental health and stuff. There's a fine line between, um, expressing something that can help people get better and wallow and, and and encouraging them to wallow in it and maybe even pandering to people who want to wallow in it. And, uh, you know, it's up to each of us to decide, you know, where that line is. Um, but that, that would be my, my only real criticism of a lot of the current zeitgeist and kind of Gen Z music is I think there's a lot of wallowing and pandering. Um, but you know, uh, I don't know. It's a case by case basis. Well, and I would also say like, why, why do we feel that we have to be ex- overly emotional? And is it basically for likes and shares? Like right, is there a, right. a bad side of it in that if I express my deep emotions and my sort of te- not quite teenage angst, but like, no, because know, it's my a lot of adult angst too, which is <laughs> a whole other conversation. Like woe is me. So what you'll find yeah. as a, a soon to be, new dad, you have a whole new appreciation for, you know, time management and challenging. There's, there's, there's two, there'll be two schools of of people in the world. There'll be people with kids and people that don't have kids. So it it really puts a lot of things into, into, um, into perspective and gives you a new appreciation for, and then also you just don't have a lot of time for wallow and sorrow because you're responsible for someone else's life. So anyways, moving on. Um, so talking (laughs) about, I look forward to all of that. You, yeah, whole other podcast to go into details there as well. So talk. I want to talk a little bit about reverse engineering a TikTok and Instagram reel. So you did another video, a 2022 uh, recap, where you talked about the TikTok effect and how trending audio can both you know rejuvenate older songs mm-hmm. and put new artists on the map. Um, you give the example of Just Pretend by Bad Omens, and there's currently like 5,300 reels that are using it. I deleted TikTok, so I don't know. Um, you know, how, how viral it's gone there. Probably a lot more. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but a lot more than that, I'm sure. Um, but what would you say, like, what are the characteristics of a song that, you know, algorithms like, and that can go viral? Um, I mean, I think it's pretty self-evident in that, like, it just, it has to work in the context of, you know, a whatever three to 20 second loop. Um, a lot of people have tried to engineer that, um, and create like a viral TikTok moment. And sometimes it works, but from what I understand, it really, and this is from talking to people who are ANRs at, you know, big labels and stuff. Um, I, I think the idea that you can like create these viral moments, I don't think it really works. Um, to use the example of Bad Omens, um, for anyone who's not familiar with them, they're sort of like a metal band that had a big viral moment on TikTok uh, in the past couple months. And the song that blew up on TikTok wasn't even one that they 
released as a single. It's just like a random it's track number eight on the album or something like that. So they never they never made a music video for it. They never intended on it to be used that way. I think it's really kind of lightning in a bottle of is there some user out there who has a clever idea and expresses it in the right way at the right moment in time and it gets blessed by the algorithm gods such that it gets you know some reach and then it snowballs from there and uh all you again all you can do is put out the raw materials like the idea that you can like deterministically know that you can put out any piece of content that's going to achieve x or y i think i think that's basically bullshit to be like totally blunt about it like um, the way I would look at it more is like every piece of content you put out is a swing at the ball. And you never know when you're going up to bat, is this going to be a swing and a miss? Is it going to be a base hit? Is it going to be a home run? You don't know. But the more content you put out, the more likely you are to eventually get that home run. So I think rather than put all your eggs in one bat, I mean, it's just, it's it basically, it's a risk conversation, you know, expected value, like rather than put all your eggs in one basket and, and try to create one big viral moment, just keep putting things out and eventually something is going to catch. Now there was a time and that more so with, you know, Facebook ads that you could appease the algorithm gods. So a, a, a famous studio, the Harmon Brothers, they did TV spots for Squatty Potty. Yeah, I remember they all those. All those. So we we went through the process to hire them. And I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but it was like a $500,000 to $800,000 check just right. to have them do the, the, the set, like make the video. Mm-hmm. And then you had to commit a minimum of a million dollars in ad spend. Because that's where they made their money. They took a yeah. percentage of all the ad spend. So you, oh, interesting. You like they would actually take a hit on the production value, but it's like yeah, the the, the ads and they had in house people that would run the ads for you and right. whatnot. Okay. Um, but in that case, it's like okay, you have the raw inputs of a viral video, but then you're getting it to a critical mass within the algorithm by spending ads. And I just don't uh, know if you can do that on TikTok as much. Um, well, TikTok's ad product is not nearly as good as Facebook's. Correct. And I don't know that it ever will be because thanks to ATT and the EU, we live in a different world now. So I don't even know if it's possible from a technical or regulatory perspective to build that ad product now. So that's a whole other separate conversation. But even then, I would guess... Like I would bet a lot of money that if you looked at all the campaigns that um, the Harmon brothers did, um, I, I would bet you they're not all squatty potty. You know, um, that is th- there was another one they did that was really big. But, yeah, it was like the Casper. There was the Casper ones, and then chat books was a, was the big one. It was you know this tired mom, and um, you know the, the the challenges of putting together photo books. Mm, I never saw that one. Check uh, it out I, on their website. Okay, I would bet you. And maybe I'm wrong, but I would bet you that the power law distribution applies to their work just the same as everybody else's. That's my guess. Now, certainly, that's not to say that all creative is equal because it's not. I mean, their creative is absolutely amazing, especially for that era. And, you know, um, and I'm sure that the people that run their ads are really good, too. So, you know, you can you can certainly improve your chances of success, but. The idea that there's, I guess my point is that there's a lot of people, all content creators know this, that it's basically like, I don't want to say it's a a roll of the dice every time, but you know, it kind of is. Uh, I think there's people who are not on the creator side of things that 
really stress and, uh, 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 stress about the idea of creating some sort of big moment and uh, just relax, you know, let go and understand that it's just that's just not how it works. Yeah, but there are some institutions that have a cultural advantage. If we think about, you gave the example of Netflix and Stranger Things. Yep. And um, that song, you know it, um, that went the, from the song from the 80s that was like uh, in the uh, Running Up That Hill. Correct. And um, Metallica also had a moment on that show. Um, uh, Ghost had another moment based on some Netflix show. So, you know, they have very successful, but again, I don't know whether they intended that or not. Um, Wednesday has had another kind of moment with the cramps. So for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm not by any means trying to say that like, oh, well, it's all, it's all up in the air and nobody knows anything more than anybody else. That's not true either. Um, so I, I guess, I don't know if this is what you're trying to say or not, but, um, you know, both of both of those things are true. There are cultures and processes um, that you can create that will improve your chances of success, but there's still no sure thing. I mean, the entertainment like Netflix is a great example. If it was possible, I mean, there's a lot of very smart people with billions and billions of dollars there. Same with movie studios. If it was possible to predict with certainty what was going to be a hit, you would think that they would have figured it out by now. And uh, they obviously haven't. Yeah, but I see for advertisers and marketers i think the good advice is how quickly you can adjust on the fly yes. and have content that can leverage these cultural significant we so i ran marketing at cafepress.com and mm-hmm. we had t-shirts mugs we had licensing deals with like we knew guardians of the galaxy was coming out mm-hmm. but we didn't know that i am groot was going to be this like s- cultural significant you know, moment. Right. But we had our marketing team, our creative team was able to pivot and produce content like within 24 hours. So, and that was for us, speed was important. So mm-hmm. when it's, you know, Wednesday and everybody's talking about that, we could have content that was out like almost immediately. We had Absolutely. This- you can't have one of these like slow bloated corporate cultures where it takes two weeks of review cycles for anything to go live. Like it just... By that time, the moment is over. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there was, we also sold art and there was always this like fine line with dead celebrities. It's like, I remember when Prince passed away, like there was a huge demand for Prince memorabilia. And Mm -hmm. there's always that fine line of how you walk that. But to your point, you know, don't have these levels of bureaucratic approval that are going to slow you down. And watering down the creative that until every single, you know, designed by committee is cancer to having like successful content marketing because the good content is never going to be safe and comfortable. Like nobody wants that. So you got to take some chances with it and understand sometimes you're going to take an L on it. And you know, you just have to be comfortable with that eventuality. And so if you were to summarize, it sounds to me that like if you're content creators, it's about reps, getting it out there. But if you are at a you know a brand that's not Netflix but wants to capitalize on these culturally significant um you know, moments, make sure that you have the approval from the higher ups that you can move and move quickly. Yep. And have a contingency and, and, you know, be ready to manage the downside too. Like if you do step in it, you know, have, have a a culture and process in place that can handle that in the right way. 
Well, speaking of capitalizing on trends, uh, Ryan Reynolds and Mint Mobile have just uh, done the first ad using ChatGPT. Speaking of, you know, leveraging mm -hmm. um, trending topics, and for me, I think that's a really important one for us to talk about right now, and just the impact of AI on content creation and marketing. So you've used it, I've used it. Um, you know, I see it as great for uh, blog blog content for code review you know it's 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 a very powerful tool and for our tea brand we're using it right now to to create recipes so how are how do you plan to use ai tools like chat gpt uh, for your for your business and for content creation you know i i don't have an answer to that yet i will say this um my my here's my current thinking um, the work that chat GPT creates, I think is kind of mediocre and is a adequate replacement for kind of an uninspired junior level person who's just grinding out mediocre work. That's, that's my impression of it so far. Um, and on the one hand, uh, I would say that's not a recipe for success. On the other hand, sometimes that actually <laughs> is a recipe for success. Um, so I, I don't know exactly where it's going to fit. I, I don't know that it's going to be a replacement anytime soon for the kind of, you know, there's these kind of like really um, articulate, like blue flame kind of thinkers that can say things you've never thought of in just a, a, a radically simple way that just makes you go, holy shit. This person is smart and they see things that I never even considered. ChatGPT is not going to be a substitute for that, I don't think. Um, however, I don't know that that content is necessarily what you need all the time. I mean, for example, a lot of my YouTube videos that have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of views are pretty uninspired and not great. And basically, all I did was summarize Wikipedia and ChatGPT could probably do that as well as I did or pretty close. Yeah, and I think that there's a there's a mad dash right now, and part of the reason it's been down for the last few days is just the sheer number of developers trying to build programs on top of it. Yeah, um, I mean they're already talking about a twenty nine billion dollar valuation. I'm getting ads for how to leverage Zapier and an mm -hmm. API plugin to open API for doing you know automation. So there's a lot of potential there, but to your point, yeah, there's nothing that's going to be able to replicate very very creative, thoughtful. Um, copy. But with that, I did ask chat GPT what questions I should ask you for this podcast. So I'm at least give you one of them. Yes. And this is an AI generated question. So how do you stay motivated and inspired in your own work as a business coach and consultant? And you can answer in anyone's voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll give you my honest opinion is uh, I grew up um, not like destitute or something, but fairly poor, you know, single mom who was an alcoholic at the time on welfare. My wife also, her family are refugees from Vietnam and we grew up or she grew up on welfare also. And so I stay motivated by a fear of being poor. And that is a great motivator. And, um, you know, and the, the real question is a soon to be dad, how do you pass that on? Cause that's always the challenge is that I've like, you know, my parents were immigrants. We didn't grow up poor, but we didn't, we, you know, it wasn't incredible. Um, but now we're, we've done well, we have a nice nest egg and my, my kids are, you know, to be honest, they're, they're quite spoiled. <laughs> yeah. Like, how do I instill that work ethic, that sort of, that, that f fear mentality, 
uh, to sort of get up and not just want to grind, but at the same time, like giving them the finer things in this world. I don't know. I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm not doing a great job to be honest. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that either. Um, I, uh, my current thinking, and again, our baby is not born yet. So I totally expect a lot of my thinking will radically change. Um, but my current thinking is I don't plan on giving them the finer things in life because I don't think that is important at all. If anything, it might be hurtful. Um, I've never heard a single person in, I have listened just the same as you have thousands and thousands of hours of podcasts and interviews. I've read tons of books. I've never met a single person say like, oh, well, the most important thing is that my parents had money when I was growing up and I'm just really grateful for that. I've never heard that. Were you talking to people that were trying to get into college? <laughs> uh, well, like, I, I mean, having... obviously it does have certain benefits. Um, but uh, among people who are like, you know, happy or have achieved things or whatever, like I, I just, I don't think. And when I think about the unhappiness that any unhappiness that I had when I was a kid, it's because my mom is a, was, she's dead, but was a very, very troubled person. The, the fact that we, that I didn't have, nice things when I was a kid. I don't give a shit at all. My wife, you know, same thing. They had like seven people living in a one bedroom house. You know, she slept three people in a bed and stuff and she had a great childhood. I don't think that, um, you know, material comforts are important to a child's happiness whatsoever. So, uh, I, I'm not concerned with giving them nice things at all. Well, I think this sort of then ties into this next theme I want to talk about and, and this, you know, punk rock ethos for entrepreneurs, so I'm going to sort of set this up a little bit. So yeah. punk rock ethos, you know, you can argue is one of nonconformity, freedom, anti-establishment, and sort of a do-it-yourself attitude. You know, I'm heartbroken that Ken Block, founder of DC, passed away. They just did his actual service today. Um, DC Shoes launched when I was a kid in high school. You know, I grew up snowboarding. I loved his, you know, Blunt Magazine, which he co-founded, mm -hmm. which was based on Big Brother, the skateboard version. And I feel that he was like the ultimate punk rock entrepreneur. He ch challenged the status quo. You know, he did things his own way. He reimagined sports marketing for skate, snow, and rally. Overall badass. And I also think of just our conversation about growing up poor, it also has this tie into this ethos of just like grinding it out, figuring out a way of, of doing it yourself and not having like this major backing and taking something from zero to, you know, a successful business. So mm -hmm. do you agree is, is, is being an entrepreneur punk rock in and of itself? Well, <laughs> this is, uh, <laughs> I sighed because this is a, there's a lot in this question and my answer to it would partly depend on who's listening. So if you're somebody that is not from the punk world, I would say yes. Uh, if you're someone who is from the punk world, I would say no. Um, because at this point I think, you know, punk really has, uh, unfortunately become just another ossified bunch of anti-success dogma. Basically, um, it's, very, very, um, I mean, if, if you want people from the punk scene to hate you, make some money or be happy, um, or, or worse, do both. Um, that's the quickest way to be ostracized by punk. It's like very rigid and dogmatic. And I would say like suffocatingly conformist. So it, which is the reason why I am not very inspired by it anymore. Like I think, I'm, I've, I've been much more inspired by technology entrepreneurs for a long time, uh, than I have. I mean, for that matter, I'm more inspired by somebody opening a fucking car wash than I am somebody in a band. I mean, people in bands are dumb. Uh, they're dumb. They have a lot of like really negative self-limiting beliefs. 
Um, and I basically want to be around them as little as possible. The kind of people that make me happy to be around are someone who is just putting their head down, getting to work and building something cool that helps them, helps their family and, you know, maybe makes the world a little bit of a better place. And some guy in a band complaining about cops, you know, to me, that's just like, maybe that was interesting and innovative in 1983, but you know, that was a long time ago. And I would argue that like punk at this point, I think is more toxic and negative than it is inspiring or, or contributing to the world in any kind of positive way. In my personal opinion, was that a painful sort of realization for you to come to? Like, is it, is it a situation where you grew up loving a scene and then as you've gotten older and you saw that it it is just sort of devolved into, you know, a shell of the, the essence that it once had, just talk us through that sort of mental journey and how you came to that conclusion. Well, it was probably always that way. Um, I realized it when I was about 14, which was 1993, I think, 94. Yeah, 93. Um, yeah, when I got close enough, you know, because I was just sort of listening to these albums. When I first got into this stuff, I was just listening to these albums by myself in my room and sort of imagining you know, what it was like, what the people were like. And, you know, I, I had a very kind of naive, idealized version of what the people on the bands and the scene were like. Um, and uh, then once I got close enough to like actually know some of them and stuff, it was kind of like, oh, these people are terrible. They remind me of my parents' awful friends. Got it. So you did have that sort of not quite trauma, but bad, ex- rough example from, you know, um, your parents' influence that you just didn't want to replicate. And, you know, you can still love the music and something that it produces. It's, I think, what is that saying? It's like, I love the music. I love the band, but I don't love their fans, maybe is one way of, of saying so it. That's a big part of it, too. And I don't like the people in the bands either. I mean, I know I'm coming off as really negative, but I'm just going to be honest with you because uh, I think it is a, a terrible trait in general in in our culture that people idolize entertainers and it is insane. Like people, my, my wife, uh, she didn't really know anybody in bands before she met me. And she grew up listening to a lot of the bands that I'm friends with. And so she met a lot of them. And, and to be fair, like uh, to be clear, the people that I'm friends with are, are cool people, but we met lots. She met lots and lots of bands through me. And, uh, at, at, and at one point she was like, you know, uh, now I realize they're just regular people pause Actually, they're worse than regular people. <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> uh, and so I think this like veneration of um, of of musicians in particular, but entertainers in general, it's like, come on, man. Like there are so many more people in the world that you should be looking to for inspiration um, than musicians of all people. I mean, these are like oftentimes profoundly dysfunctional people. Um, there's not a lot there. I mean, if you like their music, that's cool, but do not ascribe a lot of like higher order thinking or noble value. I mean, they're the most selfish people you'll ever meet. Um, and I mean, that's true of a lot of CEOs too. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, just, I mean, it's the same thing with like the idolization of founders too, you know, uh, it, all of it, just this, 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 um, phenomenon of, putting people on a pedestal just because they made a thing that you like and ascribing so many of these like noble values or character traits to this person is, is really toxic. Okay. With that though, if you were to, if you were to uh, prescribe a, ascribe a, um, a genre to tech entrepreneurs, is that even something you can do or let's not even go there? If it's not punk rock. 
Um, a genre of music. Yeah. I it's it's a different thing. It's a different thing. Um, I would say the common thread. Um, the common thread with like you know founders and musicians is the same thing. Is like make no mistake, they will put themselves ahead of you every single time. Um, you are useful to them, and they're your and you're their best friend until you're not. And um, and that's fine. Just understand it for what it is. It's a transactional relationship. You're not friends. And uh, if you believe that you are, you're going to find out one day you were wrong. Well, and I think the other thing too is I always want to provide sort of career advice. And in some cases, you know, even when I've worked with, you know, ment- um, kids that are looking at going to start up in the entrepreneurial route, a lot of times they're, they're in university, they got into like a top 10 school mm-hmm. and, you know, they have a choice of going working on Wall Street, they like anywhere. And I asked, like, do you really want to become a founder? I mean, you have all these other opportunities. In a lot of ways, like, I'm not, I try not to promote that and idolize it as it kind of sucks. I had another I would way rather be a middle, like, so my cousin, who's like 10 years, I think he's eight years older than me. um, He got an MBA from uh, UCLA and he's like a, you know, he was an investment banker and finance guy for years and stuff. Did very well for himself, not like fabulously wealthy, but, you know, rich enough to buy a house in Manhattan Beach and stuff, you know, doing very well. And uh, I was talking to him about this and I was like, oh, well, you must really push yourself. And he's like, no, no, I'm a middle of the road kind of guy. And and that's that's what I want to be. That's the smart move, man. You don't want to be a founder. Like, I, I don't want to be an entrepreneur. I am an entrepreneur by necessity because like I was just never able to get corporate America to give me the time of day. Um but, uh, you know, what I always wanted to do was have some sort of kind of like, you don't want to be in the hot seat, like take some job at a big company, like a fortune 500 company in a part of the business that nobody really cares about, like, you know, accounts payable or operations or something like that. Collect your paycheck, fly low, stay under the radar and have a happy life. Like you do not want the pressure of being a founder unless that's something you feel absolutely driven to do in which case go for it but uh, i would not sign up for that unless it's something you really 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 feel like you have to do that's my opinion well and i think in some cases it's the advice that you know you don't want to hear but it's the advice you want to hear and you know i had another podcast guest who's like being an entrepreneur is like eating glass and staring into the abyss yeah you know you all day every day all day every day and i think to your point both like tying it back into sort of this punk rock ethos and then the founder is that we idolize it but not everyone has the courage to say what you're saying is just say hey slow down there's other pursuits that aren't as sexy um but can offer a, a a potentially a much higher quality of life. Yes. My personal experience, and uh, there's a lot of the world I haven't seen, so take it with a grain of salt. But my experience is that the the more, uh, I'll say, I'll just say the more clout you get for having a job, uh, any given job, meaning the more like social currency you uh, accrue for having a given job, the shittier the working conditions are likely to be. That's my experience, like, you know, working in music or entertainment or, you know, high finance or whatever, like you're not going to find a lot of people that are, you know, um, high powered attorneys or finance people that would tell you they like their job. Yeah, there's, there is the, 
intangibles and there's the challenge that comes along with that prestige in the sense yeah. that it's like, hey, my, I'm losing my hairline, my waistline's way higher. I don't see my kids as much and I'm angry all the time. And Yes, uh, <laughs> exactly. As someone who came from the corporate world, as soon as I left, I lost 70 pounds. And uh, so, yeah, you're, you're definitely onto something there. And I think that, um, you know, for anyone listening, you know, take it, take every career opportunity or path with a grain of salt and really look at it objectively. And a lot of times the best paths aren't the shiny ones. And yeah, go be a, go be a senior finance manager, not, not a director, be like a senior finance manager at Procter and Gamble, get your, you know, 180 grand a year, which you can live great on in Ohio and call it a day. Mm-hmm. And have, but have hobbies. This is the other thing I realized. Spend time is, with your family, go to the gym, you know? Is that you, a lot of very, very successful people that I've worked with and know, like their job is their identity. It is their hobby. And that's great. It's, you know, it's what's helped them get to that point. But then like you get laid off or you retire and you're like, oh crap, like my, that part of my identity is gone. So I think that yep. it's like, have something that pays the bills that's steady, but really focus on, you know, your hobbies and thing that you're truly passionate about, I think is great advice. So speaking of passions, um, as a marketer and uh, someone who's been in the game for a long time, I mean, you have a lot of great information, a lot of insight. I love on your website that you have business cases of the projects that you've worked on. And let's talk about um, Get Good Drums. Sure. So it's a software company with a library of drum samples, and you built out this robust digital marketing system for them, which was paid traffic. And it netted a very successful launch, you know, six figures in 90 days. Which for them was a lot. You know, uh, that's small. There's probably someone listening to this thinking, oh, so what? Six figures in 90 days. That's terrible. Well, for us at the time, that was a lot. Oh, for me, it'd be great. For any startup, that would be absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, encourage people to check out your website to see more details and sort of the tech stack that you put in place. But um, do you feel that, and Facebook's ads were a big part of, you know, top of funnel Mm -hmm. awareness there. So do you still think that you can build out similar funnels with Facebook or is the return on ad spend? Um, you know, on that channel, a thing of the past? Uh, the answer to both of those questions is yes. Um, you can still build the same kind of funnels. And so what I did was pretty, I mean, it's pretty straightforward stuff. Same that I did this in 2016 it was not necessarily innovative then, but it's even less remarkable now, but uh, very straightforward kind of thing of, like you said, using Facebook and Instagram ads um, for actually, I don't even know if they had Instagram ads at that time, but whatever, uh, for top of the funnel and then doing email capture and whatnot to, uh, you know, and, and, and cart upsells to drive up AOV and then, um, do, you know, additional email marketing after the fact to drive up LTV. Um, you can, you can, and should do all of those things. Now, the, the biggest variable is that to your point, return on ad spend on Facebook, isn't what it used to be, but, uh, I'm still getting good results. I mean, for my, my company that I'm a partner, partner in, um, called, uh, nail the mix. I mean, we're still getting very good, you know, CAC to LTV performance now. So it's still possible, but I've heard from a lot of people, you know, like in the e-com space and stuff where maybe, you know, margins or LTV aren't great that, uh, in, in some spaces it may no longer be, be viable. Yeah, I think to, the CAC to LTV sh- ratio really needs to be solid in the sense that, like, you need to have a large enough L- LTV to make up for that increased, you know, cost per acquisition. Yeah. So, like, for us, our LTV is around 250 bucks. And so, if I'm spending 40 bucks to get a customer that's worth 250 bucks, I'll do that all day long. Mm hmm. 
Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, you can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use Hyperfollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. Now, is the game with social media ads all about getting email addresses off the platform so that you can dump them into a remarketing uh, drip campaign? I mean, that's going to depend on every. It's that's going to depend on every business. Um, I would encourage people to try it, it again. This depends, but if you can, like, you should try to be profitable on just a a, a, a pure like you know, um, CAC to AOV basis, if you can, 
Um, but you know, that's a finance question of like payback period and all that kind of stuff that you kind of need to decide for yourself. Um, but for us, our company, we don't have any investors. We're entirely bootstrapped. We started it with $1,500. So, um, for us being able to float, you know, 12 month payback period or whatever has never really been an option. So for us, we're happy if it's under 90 days. Um, but, uh, it's going to depend, you know, on a, on a case by case basis, but email is another one of these things that gets less and less effective over time again because of apple and lots of other factors and just any channel it's like you got to understand like (laughs) marketers rightfully so are going to run any channel into the ground (laughs) as quickly as they possibly can so any channel that's effective now is going to be effective less effective in the future so you can never rest whatever's working for you now like be glad that you have something but you always got to be looking for that next thing yeah and that's great advice and i i like to think of any marketing channel as like this on this bell curve of like the early adopters and then you know the average number of people and then the late adopters and once it gets over that peak that's when it just gets destroyed because you're right we would we'll as marketers we'll do anything to just pull as much squeeze as much water out of a rock as we can as you should and and you should but to your point you constantly have to be looking at different channels or at the very least look at how they influence one another and i think what i'm getting at from you and your background and sort of how your mind thinks you're very analytical and i think that's one of like the most underappreciated skills of a good marketer nowadays like if you're going to be a performance marketer you really have to be able to calculate your CAC to LTV, figure out what your AOV is, what's your attribution window, so yep. that you can build out these marketing plans and you know be very, very smart um, you know, on how you deploy spend or just get a job at a major company that has huge money. And they, but those, <laughs> job, those jobs doesn't are matter. gone. Performance doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I, I'm still trying to find those jobs, but I... I don't know oh it's it's baffling yeah uh that's a whole other conversation yeah but where we've had success is for our tea company we run ads on using google performance max and Mm -hmm. youtube and youtube shorts and you know that's been fantastic for us but we've also seen this like view through attribution to amazon that Mm, we've quantified it's been hard to measure but basically the general thesis is you know we're running these ads people are seeing you know youtube um ads either on their phone or their their smart tv and then they're pulling out their device Mm -hmm. and they're opening um amazon and doing a brand search so and we we see the numbers which is like the skyrocketed brand search on on amazon so there's even this like the wall gardens between like you know meta and amazon but making sure that you can make those attributions between the different channels i think is very important yeah i agree with that uh although at the same time i think that there are people who over index on attribution if that makes sense um meaning that there are people who um i think um, sp- I mean, it, a- attribution is imperfect and it always will be, you know, for all kinds of reasons. Like if you know about attribution modeling, there's no perfect attribution model. Um, and, uh, it's different for every business, but you know, I've seen people also just sort of go down the rabbit hole of attribution and, uh, there's an 80, 20 rule there as well, in my opinion. Oh, trust me. When we were trying to develop models to sell the business to to private equity, we would go into this this over attribution, you know, paralysis of you know first test, last touch, multi attribution, right. and I'm just like, guys, come on, 
we, <laughs> this is equal parts science, but there's also a bit of the art. So I think yep. to your point is like, you know, 80% science, 20% art. What's that, that, that balance there. Right. So when I joined, uh, my MBA cohort, there were no YouTubers in our class. Um, but I think that's definitely going to change over the next decade, if not sooner. Why do you You're think that? Well, because it's like the number one, um, you know, career choice of kids nowadays. Hmm. Or why do you think there was no, no, no YouTubers in our MBA class? Uh, well, I don't really know what an MBA would do for a YouTuber. Oh, that's a, you know, maybe that's it. And that's, I think, like, that's, that's in general, so into. like I thought about getting an MBA years ago. And, uh, and I asked my, uh, my cousin about it, you know, who, who has a good one and he was like, well, why do you want one? And I was like, uh, well, I maybe would get a better job. Or, and he was like, well, basically, unless you want to do high finance or be a, a, a fortune 500 executive or a couple other circumstances, nobody cares. And I was like, oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> and, uh, so I decided, you know, that it was not a prudent use of my time and money. And so for like a YouTuber and the other thing is like, I mean, YouTubers can make a lot of money. So if you're, I mean, I don't know the opportunity cost of doing an MBA instead of, you know, jumping on the YouTube bandwagon. Like if you, ha if you're riding a wave on YouTube, I wouldn't get off that wave, but, uh, continue. I'm curious to hear what you think. No. And that's a great point. Cause one of the things I did not like, and I'm not going to mention which finance professors, but I hated learning finance from tenured professors that didn't fly private, to be honest. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. I had one venture capital professor that's like, you know, he worked for a major hedge fund and he's like, yeah, like $10 million isn't life-changing money. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm listening to you now. This is the guy I want to listen this is, to. <laughs> this is the guy. But that's a great- Sounds like Nassim Taleb. Yeah. It's like, but that's a great point. I think this the sense is that like, is it's a totally different skill set and it's, to get a curriculum at a major MBA program takes a long, long time. That's a big yeah. reason I started the podcast. I'm like, okay, I've gotten the foundations and that's, what's important on MBA is like the foundation, like your finance, your economics, your accounting, all that stuff you need to have, but they're way, way slow when it comes to like talking to people like you speaking to people that are like doing cutting edge stuff, people that are, you know, loading lookalike audiences into Facebook and being able which to is almost at, 10 years old now oh yeah for sure like it's that's like no one's talking about you know TikTok creator marketplace and I know for certain that you probably have some kids maybe it's not the MBA maybe it's undergrad I know? would highly recommend I, I have an undergrad business degree and there is absolutely no way that I would have been able to do the things that I've done without it I would highly recommend that because you will actually learn like foundational things that you need to understand. Even something as simple as like, you know, an NPV calculation. I like, I never actually do an NPV calculation, but it's a mental model that serves me very well, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you're, if you're a young YouTuber and you're, you're making a couple million dollars a quarter, you know, you still want to have a good education um, so I think my question here is, is that, okay, for young kids and universities, we're seeing it right now with, with athletes, student athletes. So they changed mm -hmm. the rules for NAL where you can right. now get endorsement deals. And so you have like these millionaires coming in at, to undergrad with, you know, 
millions of Facebook or Instagram fans and following. And so the universities have to catch up to, for, for compliance. And I'm just trying to get a sense as to like, looking into your crystal ball. If you were, you know, this is not your, your hundred percent, your background, but how do you see, you know, universities having to adopt or change to students coming in that have successful, you know, YouTube channels or content creation businesses and sort of walking that fine line of educating, but also knowing that like they're probably coming in and clearing, you know, many more dollars than, than each professor. I mean, I think that's such a small subset that I just wouldn't worry about it. I mean, if someone's making that much money, I'd say show up to class or don't do what you want. You know, that's like, we're not going to change our curriculum for you. Um, but, uh, I will say in general, so I run an education business, um, and, uh, there is a very oftentimes, and I, I would imagine you'll agree with this, but I'd, I'd be interested to hear what you think. There's oftentimes a very, 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 very big Delta between what people want to learn and what they need to learn. And, um, the value I think of, um, of accredited institutions with grades and credentials and all that other sort of stuff that you can use as the carrot is that you can make people learn the things that they need to know, but don't necessarily want to know. For example, I had to take four quarters of calculus and before I, like I didn't even know what calculus was. There is zero chance that I would have taken calculus on my own. Um, but I was forced to, and I'm really, really, really glad that I did. Um, so I think that's the value of universities to me is, is that, um, you can learn, you know, what, whatever the current thing is, you can learn that on your own. Um, you know, I think that's what YouTube and TikTok and whatnot and Reddit are great for, but the foundational stuff to me, nobody is going to learn accounting on their own. And I, I think that's what universities should continue to lean on the foundations in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It's basically, the stuff that you that, that the core important foundational knowledge yeah. is key. So if it will you, teach you how to look at the world so that trends come and go. But if you have this foundational lens of evaluating the world, for example, understanding things like net present value and like expected value and risk and things like that, you can evaluate these trends that come and go through that lens. Exactly. Um so just talking a little bit then about, you know, being a YouTuber as a profession, can you tell us a little bit about your daily process and you know, don't give us any secret sauce, but is it, oh, well, there's is no it just, secrets. there's no secret. Well, what is it? Uh, my daily process, um, is, well, I'll, it's more like a weekly process. So, um, I know that I release a, I have two channels. I release a main channel video on either Tuesday or Thursday of that week. Um, basically depending on whether the sponsor has approved their piece of it in time or not. Uh, and then on the second channel, I release something on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And if I have a podcast, I release that on Sunday. So essentially it's just a constant loop of checking the status of each one of those things and, uh, moving the ball forward on each one of them, you know, in whatever way needs to be done at a high level. And what, what takes the most amount of time? Is it research? Is it, what is it? Yeah, writing the main channel videos is what takes the most amount of time. Um, in the beginning, it was editing, but now I have an editor for each one of my channels. And so um, they that's life-changing. It's not cheap, but it's life-changing because, again, the opportunity cost of me editing a video is high. Um, I would say, like, you know, it's like anything else. You look at, like, 
where do I add the most marginal value? And for me, like, I'm not a great editor. I'm okay, but I'm not great. Um, I add the most marginal value when it comes to like, um, finding, uh, the right topic and then writing a video around that. So I said, well, if I can pay someone else to do the editing piece, if that enables me to spend more time and energy, uh, on finding topics and writing the scripts for those, then I think that's a good trade. And and it was. So for your scripts, do you have like a thesis or a hypothesis in mind, or do you go into it with a blank slate, do your research? And then like Michael Lewis, you know, with his, you know, books can find these really, you know, these little kernels of wisdom Mm -hmm. that, that are odd and that most people don't, don't find. Um, well, so no, I'm not as smart or good as Michael Lewis. I wish I was. Um, and to your point, like how the fuck did he get Brad Pitt to be in a movie about statistics? That still blows my mind. Um, And how did they make it? How did they make it so damn entertaining? I think. What a feat. Yeah. I've watched it like the big short. Like I haven't seen. Oh no, I did see the big short. I read the book, which I loved. Oh yeah. It's like the book and then the movie's amazing. And then like, you know that there's, he's working on an FTX, like Sam Bankman. Absolutely. And it's going to be amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so for me, the way that I start, um, is with a topic and title because, uh, that is fundamentally the most important variable for any piece of content. Um, there is nothing you can do to make your audience interested in a topic that they're not interested in. You can maybe make a whatever 20% difference or something like that. But at the end of the day, your audience is either interested or not interested in this topic. So the framework that I have for this is um, to start by listing and you could like, I do this mentally, but I would say if you're new to content, you should actually write this out. Um, Start by Taking the high level topic, let's say it's football, um, and uh, and and then break down what your audience's existing beliefs are about this topic, and you cannot decide what those existing beliefs are or should be. Like they are what they are. So list them out. For example, if we're talking about football, um, two beliefs that audiences have about football are, and again, I'm not saying that these are right or wrong. They're just they're out there. There are people who believe that college football is better than NFL football because it's more exciting. Um, and then you can decide whether you want to validate or challenge that belief. Um, and then based on which which choice you have made about that, there's the topic and title for your video. For example, if you wanted to validate that, you would say um, uh, NFL football is boring. This is why. Uh, or if you want to challenge it, you could say like college football is you know, a sloppy mess, watch the NFL instead. Either way, the point, the, the, the fundamental building block of this is choosing a topic that your audience is emotionally engaged in. Got it. And then the challenging beliefs, I mean, that's what Malcolm Gladwell's built his whole career after is like, take a topic that people can relate to, but basically do a 180 and flip it upside down and challenge everything you've ever known about said topic, but that's a very, very hard one to do. I think he does it incredibly well. It's super hard and I wouldn't recommend it. Um, I think in general, um, and you know, I would have to, it's a good question. I have to look at it. Um, I think if you can do that, um, that is the, the greatest potential upside 
but it's really, 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 really hard to do. Um, I think that the playbook now is basically tell your audience what they want to hear. Um, pick an audience, unpack their existing beliefs and tell them what they want to hear. Um, and you will succeed. Uh, obviously, you know, um, again, like it or not, I'm not a fan, but Donald Trump, the master of that. Bernie Sanders, also great at that. New York Times, look at that. What if the New York Times decided that they wanted to endorse a Republican? Like, that's not an option. What if Fox decided that they wanted to endorse a Democrat? Not an option. You know, you got to tell your audience what they hear. Um, I used to do a lot of work for Procter & Gamble, and they had a, a term for this of ACB, which is accepted consumer belief. For example, people believe that your hair, need, they used to, I don't know if they still do, but they used to own Pantene, the shampoo. People believe that your hair needs to be nourished, which makes no sense on a, a, a factual basis because hair is not living tissue, so it can't be nourished. But that's what people believe. Um, you will get nowhere telling people, actually, you were wrong. Your hair doesn't need to be nourished. It's okay to just put this whatever like commodity ingredient in it, even though that's the facts. What you want to tell them is like, your hair needs to be nourished. That's why we made Pantene with new magic nourishing juice. Ooh, great. I'll take it. So um, you got to just meet your audience where they are. And these days, just for better or for worse, you got to tell them what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, not for better or for worse. It's definitely for worse. <laughs> There's no question about that. It's a terrible, corrosive thing on society. But, you know, if you want to fight your audience, be my guest. But that's a hill you might just die on. Mm-hmm. Now, you talked about an editor. Do you have, do you use Upwork or virtual assistants for any sort of like the mundane um, tasks for the YouTube channel? Um, I I don't because one of the advantages of having a large audience is that people come to you both of the editors well i also have another one for my podcast um all three of them were people who approached me because they liked my content and uh so that already sort of solves a lot of the challenges that you would encounter with upwork and stuff of like you know requiring often i think you don't have to have someone that understands the subject matter but i think it's you should um, and, uh, so that already solves that challenge. Um, but if you don't have that existing large audience, you know, the right person is out there for whatever you want to do, go on Upwork, go on LinkedIn, you know, wherever else, Fiverr, whatever, there's somebody out there and it might take you a while to find them and to train them. But you know, the sooner you start, the sooner you'll find them. Well, that's a big reason I reached out. I mean, I absolutely love your content. I think it's very, it's well-researched, it's thoughtful. You, you know, can convey it in an entertaining way. So I know for certain that other people would want to be involved. And I think that's a great testament to your authenticity and to your knowledge of multiple um, disciplines. And so with that, like, I'm, I'm like, if you could get a job at a university, would you, or do you feel that like, you know, you, you're, you're teaching and you've really excelled in sort of the online, I would say it's not necessarily traditional education platforms. If you were given a job tomorrow, would you do it? Or you just say that, Hey, I'm, I, I want to excel and, and grow in the mediums that, you know, you've built at this point. Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. The question is, is would you give up YouTube and, and your education business to go work at a university? Oh, at a university? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if the money was right. Got it. And that's why I'm basically with this channel. I, I look at, you know, like we said before, 
programs being way behind when it comes to different career paths. And I think that there really is a need for, you know, professors that can sort of convey information and, you know, advise students on becoming, you know, leveraging YouTube, um, you know, really being on more of the cutting edge of, um, you know, of marketing and, you know, omni-channel marketing and and everything that you do for a living, um, I think it'd be a real value add in, in, in a lot of marketing programs, to be honest. I mean, I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, it's been a while since I was in college, but, uh, I, I felt like I got a great education and the people that I, I feel like I got the most from tended to have a background as practitioners. Um, I do think there's a lot of value in, um, academics and the way that they see the world. Uh, I know that it's kind of trendy to, talk shit about academics and say that they don't know anything because they don't have real their experience, blah, blah, blah. And there's some validity to that, but I think they also have like a level of, you know, analytical rigor that at least I appreciate and that I think is valuable. So I'm not ready to like throw the baby out with the bathwater personally. And I'm not, that's not what you're saying necessarily. Um, but at the same time, I do think there's a need for more practitioners. The problem is that it's really hard to get someone to walk away from, you know, a job where they're making whatever, two to $500,000 a year, if not more to go work at a university where they're dealing with an equal amount of bureaucratic bullshit, um, for a lot less money. And they're like, why would I do that? Yeah. I think you really have to love teaching. And I agree. Like some of my favorite professors have always been professors of the practice. Like I had a, you know, a stats professor that worked at Uber and we mm. was building out these incredibly challenging, you know, statistical models on how to calculate, you know, the recommended time from pickup to destination and right. just like peeling behind the scenes of just the unbelievably complicated math associated with those challenges. And that was awesome. And the same thing with venture capital, private equity professors that actually had full-time jobs and were doing these multi-million dollar deals. But to your point, you know, they have full-time jobs, they have responsibilities, and I think they really have to love teaching. Yeah, I would, and I do. I mean, I like, that's something that i like maybe in an alternate, I didn't understand, you know, I didn't start college until I was 24, 25. And, um, it wasn't until I was like a senior in college that like I had a, uh, I think it was like an entrepreneurship professor or something that was like, Hey, have you ever thought about getting a PhD? I was like, Oh, why would I do that? And he explained, like, I just literally didn't know that like, that's sort of the, the pathway to being a professor and stuff. And I was like, well, that sounds cool, but I'm, 29 and it's a little bit late for that. And, you know, I just in a different world, maybe I would have done that because it seems like something I would enjoy. But, you know, in my case, the die was cast. But, you know, yeah, I would totally do that if if the deal was right. I I, I would enjoy that a lot because I really like helping people. I mean, the, I, the original the reason I called my channel what it is, is because what I uh, originally wanted to do was help people with the things that were challenging for me. Um, when I was younger, which is like, I've always been a hard worker and I think I was just sort of blessed to be born smart, but I had no fucking clue how business works or how to make any money or just how to navigate any of that. Because like my mom never had a career. Um, and, and I'm not like putting her down for that. Like she worked very hard, you know, doing, she taught me a lot of other things, but she just, she didn't know anything about, you know, the working world. Um, and, uh, and my, my dad was a corrections officer. So also an awesome guy who taught me a lot of stuff, but none of them, neither of them knew anything about money or business or anything like that. Um, and, and so I really like floundered, um, in my 
you know, early to mid twenties. Cause I just had no idea what to do. And that was my original goal for the channel was to help people like me who had like a desire to like make something out of themselves and maybe a passion for like, you know, uh, starting a business or, or, or working in business to figure it out. Um, but, uh, turns out, um, people would rather hear me, um, make videos about, um, bands they liked in high school than help them. So that's what I do. Cause I make more money that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think that that's the core of the essence is that, you know, you truly want to help kids and you, that you see parts of yourself in, but you don't want them to necessarily go down this path, which is like start a band and grind it out, you know, and quote unquote, follow your dream. We're better. No, I don't. I think that's a fucking horrible idea. Yes. And I think that that's a great, and, and, and what, what could come across as being harsh is actually sounds to me that's coming from a place of real, you, you care, you fundamentally care. And it's, I do. It's, it's the advice that you don't necessarily want to hear, but you need to hear. And those are the best mentors. I'm telling anyone who listens, find a mentor who's going to be blunt and the I advice agree. is going to be hard, but it's what you need to hear. One of the best things anybody ever told me was the, um, the the owner of i used to work at this uh design agency uh called kaleidoscope in cincinnati which is where i did a bunch of stuff for like febreze and procter and gamble or for procter and gamble for example like febreze and swiffer and bounce and like a lot of the products that are still in the market for those brands i worked on um and i learned a ton from working with png but also from the ceo who is this real like kind of no nonsense like he didn't come from a design background uh, he's a sales guy and he's like this no nonsense like ohio um, kind of guy. I think he played like football in high school and college. And, uh, and, and at the time he could tell that I was nice, a nice person at heart and, and that I was smart and I was trying to help, but I was doing a lot of things that really rubbed people the wrong way. Cause I just didn't understand how to kind of, you know, how to get along with people. And he's like, Finn, let me tell you something. I was like, he called me into his office and I was like, oh, okay, what? And he's like, Nobody really gives a shit how good you are at, their, at your job. They only care about whether it makes, whether they feel good working with you. And I was like, uh, fuck. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> and, uh, that was one of the most important things anybody ever told me. And it sure didn't feel good to hear it at the time, but man, I'm glad he did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I can think of people in my career, um, uh, that I've worked with mostly on like the development side that were absolutely geniuses when it comes to developing, but didn't necessarily have the strongest emotional intelligence. And that's right. something that, you know, takes a while to sort of, you know, cultivate. Um, I want to talk briefly before we, we, we close about a new phenomenon that I'm seeing. So on some of your episodes, you know, you've obviously talked a lot about, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, skater pop punk and pop punk and like all the t-shirt brands, you know, from Atticus to famous stars and straps to mm -hmm. role model. And then now we're, we're seeing, you know, makeup brands with influencers and then, um, oh yeah, I have a lot to say about this one. Okay, okay, I'm getting to it. Yeah, go on. Uh, I'm an investor in a company that actually does the whiskey for Yellow Wolf, mm -hmm. and you know, there's more and more celebrities that are you know being involved with liquor brands, and then now it's these celebrities on cap tables. Yeah, I'm thinking you know, Liquid Death, you know, Liquid IV, Athletic Brewery, mm -hmm. um, to sort of you, you basically now have like a celebrity funding round for DC yep. brands, so. What do you think about that? And if you had a startup and you made it to a Series B and you needed a celebrity round, what does your ideal cap table table look like? 
my ideal cap table does not have any celebrities on it. That is my answer. Why is that? Um, Because um, they are, um, I have a lot to say about this and I'm trying to sort of pick where to start. Okay. Uh, The reality is that anybody who has the social capital such that you want to work with them is not going to work very hard to build your company. They're going to do the absolute minimum possible. They usually won't do what they say they're going to do. And you don't really have any leverage because they don't really need you and you need them a lot. Um, So if you are in a category in which um, you believe that um, having clout is important, which it is in things like alcohol and entertainment and all these other sort of categories that I would encourage people to avoid um, for all those reasons. If you're in one of those categories where clout matters, um, find a way to work with these people in uh, a way that you don't need them on your cap table, most likely, in order to have clout. Um, There are some exceptions to that. But I think if you get one of these and I I, I, tell me if you disagree, well, you you can't be honest with me either way, but um, tell me what you think about this. But um, I think because I have been in situations with many influencers and celebrities and musicians and stuff on the cap table. There's never been one of those situations where I said, boy, I'm glad that person's on the cap table. Thank God we got him or her on the cap table. Um, I think they uh, generally capture a lot more upside than you do for basically just being able to say on your website or whatever that, you know, so-and-so was part of the company. So can you just pay them cash or can you do like, some sort of lightweight activation for them such that they're okay with you, you know, throwing their name around, like find a way to work with them, but don't put them on the cap table unless you absolutely have to. Yeah. Where you're basically saying it's cheaper to get a licensing agreement with them and you're not yeah. eluding your ownership. I, I'm wondering. And as- muddy and, and just do not, whatever you do, do not get them involved in any sort of, creative approval process unless it's absolutely necessary, which sometimes it will be, but it is not going to be fun to work with them in any, like if you expect them to act anywhere remotely close to like the people you are used to working with, that is, you're going to be in for a rude awakening. So just if you want to work with influencers and celebrities and entertainers and stuff, buckle up. That's all I have to say about it. Yeah. Cause another thing too is shareholder rights bring in a whole other can of legal worms. Like yep. for instance, I signed a big licensing agreement with a celebrity for one of the brands that we ran and within the contract, if they were you know, accused of a federal crime, it was instantly got you out of that licensing agreement. Mm-hmm. So, you know, is there a situation where someone, a celebrity on your cap table you know, does something very, um, I'm thinking like astral world, um, type of bad Mm -hmm. situation that you want to distance yourself from them and that persona, which Um, is entirely possible. They do it all the time. Not, well, not astral world level, but there are lots and lots of things that, you know, influencers may do that makes you tug at your collar and you're like, I sure wish we didn't hitch our horse to this wagon. Yeah, and especially with cancel culture and where that's going. Yes. Um, I do think, though, there is something to be said about when you're going out to raise money and, you know, does a big name help at least open doors with, mm-hmm. you know, major VCs and other... Yes, investors? because a lot of them are try-hard clout junkies. 
I wouldn't summarize it that way, but but it's a fact. I've seen it. Yeah, it's sort of like you know when you do a pitch deck, and on your second screen, it's a list of your clients. You know, oh, your, you know, I can be in the same room as Jay Z. Take my money. Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's honestly, it's that fucking simple in a lot of cases, and it's pathetic. But if that's what you do to got to, if that's what you got to do to get their money, then you do it. Right. So, am I hearing it's a hard no, or is there some benefit to it? Just be very cautious, or are you like this is just a whole red flag. I would rather have, you know. Everyone needs to be an accredited investor, but like serious investors that have done the math and that, you know, it's not just about clout and opening doors. It's just about hardcore financials. Um, well, it's about both of those things. Again, if um, if you happen to know that a particular investor that you want to work with, um, you know, loves 90s rap or whatever, and you give advisor shares to some 90s rapper um, – you know, as a way to make this VC think you're cool to get 10 million bucks from them, then do it. But just, you know, go into it with your eyes open, knowing that the more you, um, the more you involve, you know, whatever influencers, entertainers, these people like, uh, the messier it's going to get, and they're not going to, they're, they're very, 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 very selfish people. Um, they like, yeah, that's, that's what I would just, I'm trying to find the right way to say this. Um, I have never seen an exception to this, that those people are going to put themselves and their creative projects ahead of you every single time in a way that may be shocking to you. Um, but that's how it's going to go. Um, Unless and maybe they're nice to you for a week, and then all of a sudden something else comes along—a shiny object or an opportunity—you know—for them to do something that's going to um, stroke their ego more, and they will leave you in the dirt. And there's not a whole lot you can do about it in most cases. Yeah, and I think that to end on this point, maybe another way of looking at it is—and this is necess- not necessarily for shareholders, but like executives have a you know fiduciary duty f- to make decisions that are right for the business. Mm-hmm. And you know, you want to make sure at the very least that you know your advisors, your board, your executives are always putting the interest of the business first and foremost, and then to shareholders. Um, but there's a but, but so everything I'm saying like sounds really super brutal and negative, and I'm saying that because um, probably nobody has ever heard anybody say that because you're supposed to say that working with these people is awesome and great and they're so cool and blah blah blah, um, and so there's still a way you know if you want to do it like just make sure that you limit the blast radius. That's the way I would think about it. Just understand that these people are who they are. Take advantage of their clout because that's the value that they are adding, and that is real value. Just limit the blast radius operationally, legally, you know, culturally, whatever. Yeah, and on, and on the flip side too, I mean, with that is we're even seeing it right now. These are more endorsement deals, but with just like the crypto winter that we're suffering right yep. now, a lot of the blowback against Matt Damon, Kim Kardashian, anybody who put their name, you know, associated the with Shark anything. Tank guy, I forget his name right now, Kevin O'Leary. Kevin O'Leary, all the rest yep. of them. That's just sort of like, so maybe it'll be a little bit tightening up there. Well, TBD, but the advice that I'm hearing is once again, the device that you device that you may not want to hear but it's the device you need to hear be mindful of celebrities on a cap table yeah and and it, so if you want to work with these celebrities you know pay them 50 grand 
to um, do a panel, you know, a, a panel discussion with you that you, um, for example, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. How about this? Um, let's say that you run an online education business and I'll use a, um, well, I'll just say it. This is a company I used to work for um, and they've been acquired by Fiverr now. So it is what it is. Um, our tactic for this was there was a whole bunch of people that we wanted to say that we worked with. And for us, and we were an online education company, and for us to get them to do some sort of a class with us would be astronomically expensive. You know, for example, we reached out to this one well-known movie director, and he wanted 125 grand for like a 90-minute lecture, which even, you know, we raised like $65 million or something. And even for even in that situation, that's just not financially viable. So we thought, well, how can we um, how can we get these people on the platform without having to offer them equity because we don't want to do that, and without offering them huge amounts of cash because we can't do that. Um, so what we did is we came up with this event called Thirty Days of Genius, where it was essentially a glorified podcast, but you know we tried to sort of make it kind of an edutainment sort of thing, like Masterclass does, um, and then we put that on our platform, and it was a class that we sold, but the price was free. And, you know, we got them to sign a release that allowed us to do that and stuff. And so that way we were able to say we have classes with, you know, Richard Branson and um, uh, uh, fucking, you know, uh, Ariana Huffington and whoever else, you know, uh, Mark Cuban, people like that. So we're able to say we have them on our platform without having to give them cash or equity. Yeah, and that's a very smart approach. I mean... Something similar that I had many, many moons ago was when we brought Gore Vidal to do a talk at uh, campus and he racked up a $10,000 bar tab that we had to, we had to pay for, which wasn't in the contract. (laughs) Yeah. But that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. That's the kind of thing they're going to do. And what are you going to do? You're going to pay the bill. That's what you're going to do. Exactly. So solid advice. All right. This is rapid fire. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. What scares you most about becoming a dad? Um, finding time to do the things that I do that support the family while still spending time with the kid. Yeah. You've clearly given thought to that. Yep. Time management is the essence. Uh, blink 182 or some 41 blink is Mark McGrath an underappreciated metal front man. Uh, he is an underappreciated human being. Shout out to Mark McGrath. Shout out to sugar Ray. I saw that earlier, so I want to. I, when, when you saw that, I, I think it was Twitter or wherever you posted it. Yeah, nineteen ninety seven. I was at Warp Tour, and this is when it was their second album, Floored, and and it was right before Fly was about mm-hmm. to blow up, and they were on the second stage. Um, the main stage was like Social Distortion, you know, Real Big Fish, Less yeah. Than Jake, and I was like, "Who the heck is this band?" <laughs> and the front man, like Mark McGrath, jumped into the stage, like into the audience. He was crowd surfing, and it just had this incredible energy. And I was like, "Man, this guy's amazing!" And then, like a few months later, Fly took off, and like it's like very much like what did what did they called? Um, if you l- listen to Floored, I mean, it's still got a lot of metal, mm-hmm. it's sort of like funk metal. And I think he gets a bad rep as sort of like a pretty boy, but like, man, shout out to him. I, I, I'll I tell saw you how many like, fucks he gives zero. Yeah, he's awesome. <laughs> I was like, it's amazing. And like, look at old footage and listen to Florida. I just, before this podcast, I listened to it again. It was just took me back to high school and I was like, man, he's awesome. Yeah. Seems like a really cool guy. All right. So you like Mark McGrath. He's a cool guy, but what do you have against Ska? Uh, the fans. 
Um, I have a, um, uh, a, a thesis, which I, I believe will be empirically validated, that the uh, less social currency any given fandom has in real life, the more aggressively insufferable they are online. For example, ska, shoegaze, black metal, any of these kind of genres that attract, um, I guess what I'll call, I, I call them punishers. These sort of people that just uh, can't accept the fact that you may not like the same things that they like. That's my problem with Scott. It's hilarious. I'm trying not to laugh into the mic. Hey, it's okay. This is a safe space. You can laugh all you want. It's it's great. They're just brutal. It's like people. You need to touch grass. It's fucking Scott. You take it so seriously. Oh man! Um, Imagine being 32 years old and getting angry at somebody because he doesn't like real big fish. Like. <laughs> you need to take a look in the mirror my people but you did say that you love less than you like less than jake i love yeah they're cool okay um is rancid pop punk uh no why uh rancid i would say is just punk okay it's got melodies catchy tunes there's part of me like is is rancid just a more hardcore blink 182 or am i just pissing everybody off and am am i way off no, Rancid is um, a uh, a version of like UK Subs or The Damned or something like that with a little bit better songwriting. Okay. It's like 82 punk with better songwriting. Neil Pert of Rush or Thomas Hockey, am I pronouncing that right, of Meshuggah for drummers? Uh, gosh, I mean, it's really kind of apples and oranges. Uh I mean, I would say Neil Pert is maybe the more tasteful player. Uh, Thomas Hawke is, is definitely technically better, but uh, both great, just two different things. Best marketing book or resource that you would recommend? Um, the best, gosh. Uh, I'll give you two answers. Uh, on a big picture level, a psychology textbook. On a tactical level, jab, 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 right hook by Gary Vaynerchuk. You're a Vaynerchuk fan? Yeah, he's awesome. Anybody that thinks that he is full of shit has never consumed any of his long-form content. For example, go listen to, um, he has a a series on his podcast called The 4Ds, which is where people pay a bunch of money to be in a room with him for uh, a day and ask him questions. His um, answers to those questions will very quickly and we did a bunch of stuff with him at my old company, um, you know, so I know him. Well, not know him personally, but know him in that capacity. Um, his answers to those questions will very quickly show you that he is not this like talking head motivational speaker guy that people think he is. The guy knows his shit on like an operational level very, 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 very deeply. And that's the content I would encourage people to consume. Awesome. Last one. My f- all-time favorite guitarist is Jean Fouchante. Do you have a favorite guitarist? Uh, You know, I'm more of like a songwriter kind of guy. I don't really like geek out on technique anymore. Um, But John Frusciante is, uh, yeah, I think that's a great pick. He's awesome. Yeah, he's prolific. I mean, the number of solo albums is insane. Great songwriter, great player. Uh, Yeah, seems brilliant, brilliant guy. Uh, I'll go with that. My personal favorite probably would be Dimebag Daryl from Pantera. But um, uh, yeah, I think John Frusciante, I wouldn't argue with that one. Awesome. Finn, keep up the great work. Um, 
very inspiring content. I love your combination of, you know, just being brutally honest, but being able to back it up with data and facts. Um, love watching and, and um, you know, Punk Rock MBA. I encourage anybody to go to finmckenty.com if you're a brand, if you're a university that want to give you a position as a professor of the Let's practice. Let's do it. I'm in. do it. I will. I, I guarantee it'll be a book class i mean to me like you're like like a scott galloway of like culture oh no is that bad you don't like no, him no 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 i no. he's he's I, uh he seems like a good guy i think sometimes he tries a little bit harder than he should okay fair enough spoken like somebody who can just be brutally honest and comes from a punk scene <laughs> i i bet you he would agree with me on that awesome well finn thank you so much for making the time this is awesome and i uh, really appreciate everything you do Same to you. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that. And you can just sit at home, think about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast. A songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, And I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com.